Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We have begun the season of Lent, and it will be the first Sunday in Lent when we gather together this weekend. Our readings are the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19 for the epistle, and the gospel from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So as you start out, we have the fall, the fall into sin. The Romans text is going to end up picking up on that and the idea that death came through one man and spread to all men because all sinned, and then shifts to the idea that as it came through one, also comes grace through one, Jesus Christ. And the gospel text is going to be the temptation account of Jesus from Matthew's gospel, where he, well, he's faced the temptations that we gave into. He faced them perfectly, without sin. So we've got the imperfect man and the perfect man being contrasted this weekend. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked." And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Our text starts out with uh, the serpent. And there's no doubt that Christian tradition, history, has seen this as no mere serpent. But as the serpent that we call the devil, Satan. Now, it's hard to say much more than that. Why is Satan described in such a way here? We do know he's created. He's a fallen angel. Every angel is a creation that God has made. And really the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 does not tell us when God made the angels. But they would have been made in creation week as well, for that is when the Lord made all things. And here we are shortly after creation week, And the devil comes into the garden seeking to destroy it. In his craftiness, he knows that if he wants to destroy the garden, he must go after the caretaker. He has to go after the one God has put in charge of caring for the garden. Man. And so he goes and he goes to the woman. He brings his temptation to her. Did God actually say? And this, by the way, is the devil's only trick. Even to this day, really, he continues to cause people to doubt the truth, the veracity of God's word. Did God really say? 
I mean, you can think of it with any number of theological topics. From something like, did God really say, women can't be pastors? Did God really say that he is the only way to be saved? Or as the devil continues to ply that trick, did God really say he would forgive you for this sin? Satan's had over 6,000 years to practice this trick, and he's really good at it, causing division, despair, and doubt. So as he does this to Eve, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, is the the follow-up of the question. And we know that's not what God commanded. In fact, he told her, he told Adam, that they were to eat from any tree of the garden except for one. And she's going to relay that to him now. But note, verse 3, God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, in the account in Genesis 2, that second part's not there. Eve seems to have added in, shall not touch it. God forbid eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you'll die. Eve was not present at the moment when God spoke those words. He spoke them to Adam, and then after that he created Eve. And so Adam is, in this way, the first pastor as he takes the word of God and he preaches it to his wife. And she learns God's word. She learns that she is not to eat from that tree. So the question becomes, who added it? And it may not be added at all. It could be that the Lord said the part about not touching it. Or it could be that Adam has added it in as he taught his wife in order that she would be even further removed from the temptation. If you can't touch it, you're going to be less likely to eat it. Right? If you pluck a fruit from its branches and you're just holding it in your hands and looking at it and dwelling on it, well, that's, that's temptation. So let's just not even touch it. I could see that being something Adam could have said and added. So God could have said it, Adam may have added it, or... I guess Eve could have added it herself here as well. There is a connection to the Pharisees on this one, as this is really what they did with the Old Testament law. They added laws around the laws God had that made it even harder for them to break God's law. That's looking at it with the best case construction. Now, Satan pushes back. You will not surely die. And this is a half-truth. Begs the question, what is death? When Eve sinks her teeth into that flesh, she is not going to drop dead. But when she sinks her teeth into that flesh, the entirety of creation is broken, and what was very good is is now dead. Instead of living forever, she is now pointed to a grave. So, it is death. It was certainly a spiritual death, but it also brought about physical death. It just didn't happen instantaneously, the physical part. Certain things did. The realization that she was naked, for example. 
So he continues his temptation. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation to be like God, and what that means here in the devil's words is to know good and evil. Again, a half-truth. They already know the good. The Lord has thus far spared them from knowing the evil. They don't need to know suffering or pain or death. God has kept that. He's kept that away from them. But Eve gives in to the temptation. She takes the fruit. By the way, we don't know what kind of fruit this is. I know apple is the one that you normally hear. But there's nothing in scripture to indicate that. It could be a fruit we don't even have anymore. That this tree was one, unique, singular in all of creation, and that there are none like it anywhere else. It could be that there were, ended up being more of them, and that over the last 6,000 years, this particular fruit has gone away. Or it could be we still have this fruit with us. In which case, we just don't know what it is. Start naming off different fruits that grow on trees. Apples, pears, I don't know, bananas, coconuts, whatever, right? Uh, it could be any, any of a number. She gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This does, by the way, make it sound as though Adam is standing there present as the devil tempts his wife. In which case, Adam failed his wife. He did not defend her from false teaching. He did not defend her from an enemy that snuck into his house. Not saying he had a physical house, but his house, his family. He allowed Satan to attack his wife, and he stood by and he watched. This is why scripture puts the blame on Adam, usually, as Romans 5 will later on in our conversation today. At this point, they realize that they are naked. Chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked, they were not ashamed. God did not make us to care for ourselves, he made us to care for each other. Adam's job was not to care for Adam, but to care for Eve. Eve's job was not to care for Eve, but to care for Adam. And by extension, they also cared for the rest of creation. If Eve is caring for Adam's every need, Adam doesn't need to care for himself. And vice versa, if Adam's caring for Eve's every need... Eve doesn't need to care for herself, and so they can be naked, and it's not an issue. They're not looking down. They're only caring for each other. But now, now after sin, in order to recognize that they are naked, they must look down. They must look upon themselves. This is one of the ways that sin gets described historically. I believe St. Augustine was maybe the first to say it this way. Um, I forget the exact Latin wording of it at the moment, but... It's like incurvatus inse, I think might be it. But curved in on ourselves. It's one that the Lutheran reformers did pick up on as well. Sin is curved in on ourselves. Instead of looking outward to love our neighbor, 
we look inward to love ourselves. That's what they've done here. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm hesitating to stop there. Uh, that's the paragraph. Uh, it breaks up the chiasm. I'll come back to that word in just a moment. So they hear God with them. God has not abandoned them. He did not make this creation and then disappear. He's been here. And there he is in the Garden of Eden walking. Well, it's quite something to fathom in of itself. Cool of the day. A little harder to say, I think. Sometimes some will take that as morning. Others will take it as late afternoon. I'm imagining the idea that paradise, Garden of Eden before it was broken, probably the whole time was nice, so hard to say. But the point is, it's day. And they're hiding. They hide themselves from God, thinking they can hide their sin from the Lord. Yahweh calls out, where are you? It's not that Yahweh doesn't know. He knows exactly where Adam is. It is the opportunity to take accountability, responsibility for his sin, for his actions here. God is giving Adam the chance to step forward and confess. Adam does not do that. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice there's no confession there. Who told you you were naked? Again, God knows. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God knows. He's giving Adam the chance to own his sin. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Technically, there is a confession there. I ate. But what comes before it? The woman whom you gave. Adam blames his wife and he blames God before taking any kind of accountability for himself. He plays the blame game. So if you see this in your children, if you see this in your workplace, etc., it goes all the way back. Yeah. A fair estimate, 6,700 years for the age of the earth. It's a guess, but it goes all the way back to then. So does the body image thing, that they knew they were naked. They were ashamed. God then looks to the wife. What is this that you have done? Giving her the opportunity to confess her sin. 
to take accountability, responsibility. And what does she say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. So Adam points to Eve and God. Eve points to the devil. Nobody here wants to take responsibility for what they've done. Now, God just continues the the conversation here. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice God just kind of follows the pointing fingers. So Adam points his finger at Eve. God speaks to her. She points it at the devil. God speaks to the devil. And he curses the devil. Now, that the devil is cursed and has to go on its belly the rest of the days indicates to us that at first serpents must not have been slithering creatures like they are now. Maybe they had legs and kind of crawled along the ground. Or maybe they had wings and could fly. Hard to say. Maybe they had both. But snake kind has now lost that. Verse 15 is known in the church as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto, first, like a prototype. Evangelium, evangelism, good news. This is the first good news in Scripture that immediately after Adam and Eve have committed sin, what happens? God promises salvation. So here it is. He's going to put enmity between serpent, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between their offspring. And that offspring of Eve shall bruise the devil's head, and he will bruise the offspring's heel. And that's a picture of the cross. That Satan strikes out at Jesus, thinks he's won, but in the moment he thought he had won, Jesus has crushed him defeated him, destroyed the devil and all his power, and rescued us. This is good news. Now, I mentioned all of this as a chiasm. It's a Hebrew literary device that you see in the the Old Testament. Um, I don't know, today I feel like I'd call it the sandwich technique if I were thinking of something in English. Uh, It's a pattern that can be followed. So God speaks to Adam, we'll call that A, then to Eve, we'll call that B, then to Satan, we'll call that C, And he doubles back, and he goes back to Eve, so back to B, and then he goes back to A, he goes back to Adam. So it's A, B, C, B, A. It's a sandwich. Chiasm is, again, the Hebrew term, C-H-I-A-S-M. There was no opportunity for Satan to take accountability. He's the devil. He's already fallen. He's already rejected the Lord. And so... He doesn't get that chance. Instead, he's simply given his curse. And then we go back to the curse to the woman and then the curse to the man. So for the woman, it's just the one verse, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Really, the curse of both 
the wife and the husband, they're both three parts. So Eve's curse, number one, is painful childbirth. She will bear children and it will hurt. I'm not a woman. I haven't done that. My wife has. I've been there for her, with her beside her. Many of you have been there. You've done that and you know the pain. That's the first part of the woman's curse. Multiply, make numerous. We think of multiplication. We think there'd already be pain there. There might not have been a pain any, at that point. Multiply makes it sound like it in English, but it may not have existed at all. Make numerous is another way to say it. Number two, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. If you're reading an older ESV Bible, that's going to be different language. I noticed that as I was studying the text. Contrary is not normally there. Uh, even the older ESV used the word for. And I'm I'm got mixed feelings on this one. It helps. It helps to see what the curse actually is. It's not what the Hebrew word is, though. So they stuck contrary in here in the most recent ESV update. And again, it helps us to see what God is actually saying. Before, you had to look ahead. You had to look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So your desire shall be for your husband. The, the normal English hearing of that would think that it's a good thing. So why is that a bad thing? We'd also maybe even make it a sexual thing, that you will have a sexual desire for your husband. And again, that would be a good thing. But here's the issue. Go to Genesis 4, verse 7, where God is speaking to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice how it's the same phrase. It is the same Hebrew word desire, by the way. Sin desires to master over you. God has made the husband the head of the house. God has given Adam a certain role in his family. And the curse of woman is that she's going to want that position. She's going to want what God has given him rather than what God has given her. That's part two of the curse. And we see this one all the time. I don't laugh at all the jokes our culture has about how women wear the pants and the husband's a buffoon. It's like every comedy pretty much ever. It's not funny. It's the curse. It's sin. It's what has been wrought upon us by the devil's work and our own, our own fixation on ourselves. The third part, as she tries to steal his role, he's going to fight back. He will rule over you. The word rule doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation. God rules, and that's good. Man was created to rule and have dominion over the earth, and that is good. However, here, this rule, less so. In part, it's good because this is what God has designed. He designed the husband to rule his house, or to rule his family. But now in the brokenness of it, he's going to do that harshly, rudely, antagonistically, whatever uh, Lee word you want to stick there. 
That's Eve's curse. Three parts. Painful childbirth. Painful labor. Seeking to steal her husband's position. And being dominated in return. Now we go to Adam. We finish out our chiasm, our sandwich here. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, Adam gets cursed for for disobeying God's command, listening to his wife and not God. Listen to the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. His curse is also threefold, although it's not as straightforward one, two, three here. There's a lot of bouncing back and forth. The first part is that the ground is cursed. Adam was to be the keeper of the ground. He was to care for the earth. Now the earth is broken. All that's on it, even the animals that eat from the earth, they are also broken. And that's going to bring us to the thorns and the thistles. It's going to bring us to the eating of the plants of the field. It's, it's going to bring us all these, these things. Makes you wonder how hard it would have been to actually care for the Garden of Eden. No thorns, no thistles. Animals didn't die. Would have been a fairly cushy task. Paradise is coming, by the way where we will care for the Lord's new creation. The second part of Adam's curse, in pain, you shall eat of it. Painful labor for both, right? Painful labor in childbirth for the woman, painful labor in working the ground for the man. Till you return to the ground. Part three, death. For those of you who were just at an Ash Wednesday service, you likely heard those words as the ashes were placed upon your forehead in the shape of the cross to remind you that Christ has forgiven you of that sin. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then we end today with verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them I struggle with verse 20. Adam did not name his wife Eve. He named his wife in connection to the word for living in the Hebrew language. So as her name means living, that she would become the mother of all the living, the Hebrew word for that is uh, chai. And so her name is a, a play on that word, and it's basically chayah. Um, I don't know that I'm saying those all that well. When this got translated, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, several thousand years later, well, a few thousand years later, before Jesus came, a couple of generations, before the turn of the year zero, when it translated into Greek, the word for living was zontone, and the name of Eve then became zoe, which is the Greek word for life. Zoe would be her name. 
And then as this got translated into Latin in the 4th, 5th century by Jerome, Jerome lost the wordplay. He put, he put the word living in there, uh, which in Latin is viventium, but when he went to name Eve, he simply brought her name forward from Hebrew, and so her name in the Latin text is, I believe it would be pronounced Heva. It should have probably been Vivian, to have a name that's related to the word for living. And that then is the same for us in English. We've also lost Adam's wordplay here, that if she is the mother of all the living, living, then in English, what would our name for her be? Maybe Liv? Olivia? Something like that? But we know where is Eve, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And then lastly, God sacrifices an animal to clothe his people. This is the first death in the history of creation. There had not been a physical death. There had not been the shedding of blood until now. And God sacrifices to provide for man. Hopefully the way I phrase this has pointed you to Jesus. God sacrifices himself. He sacrifices his son. He gives up his own life to provide for man. He clothes us with his righteousness. And that's something we'll be seeing in our epistle today. So let's dig into that epistle text, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 12 is one that I I use a lot as I teach. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Sin came into the world through one man. Adam, as we saw in the text here in the Old Testament, Adam broke creation. He ate the fruit he was not supposed to eat. He did not care for his wife. He is blamed, here in Romans 5, for creation's fall. Death then spreads to all men because all sinned. That's a hard line. But it's true. I lost a child in the womb not that long ago. In just the last month at the time of this recording. I don't know if that little one was a boy, a girl, I don't know. We've named the child Mercy because that is our prayer that the Lord will have mercy. But I know they were a sinner. Because they died. Death spread to all men because all sinned. We are sinful from the moment our mothers conceived us. That is Psalm 51, verse 5. It's a difficult verse, and yet an easy one. It's simple. It's straightforward. Death is the consequence of sin. We sin, we die. 
which is pretty much what God told Adam and Eve in the garden, that if they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, that they would die. Verse 13 is not nearly as simple or straightforward. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. That part's not too bad. The law given is a reference to Moses at Mount Sinai. So Exodus chapter 19 and following, where Moses goes up onto the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, brings them down to the people who have already started to idolize, worshiping a golden calf and so forth. Sin was in the world before the law. The world was already broken. It's the second clause here that's a little tougher. Sin is not counted where there is no law. The word counted in Greek may be best translated here, charged to one's account. It's a little bit longer of a phrase. It almost makes it sound like we're not responsible, but it's not that because verse 14 rules that out. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Just as verse 12 said, you sinned, you died. And that happened from the time of Adam until the time of Moses. It happened before the law was given. So maybe, instead, what is being expressed here by this latter clause in verse 13, sin is not counted, is just the distinction, you're one and done, and you really don't give it any more thought than that. There is no law, there's no attempt to be perfect, you sinned, you're going to die, that's all there is to it. There's no counting. There's no attempts at reconciliation. It just is what it is. This is the broken state of man. And so death reigns from Adam to Moses, even before the law comes. Death reigns. It's an intriguing phrase. Inanimate things, things can't reign. Death is personified here a little bit in this. It even reigned over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. There are many different kinds of sin. Many different ways that we sin against God and rebel against him. Death reigns over all. Now, Adam is called a type of the one who was to come. Type, anti-type is a, a literary device. Just like we have the chiasm in the Genesis text. Type is basically the thing that foreshadows something to come. So Adam is the type of Jesus. He points us in a foreshadowing, in a lesser kind of way, to something greater, to Jesus Christ. So Adam, and this is what the next paragraph is going to be about, basically, in summary, Adam broke it all. One man broke it all. Jesus One man redeems it all. Type, anti-type. The type is the brokenness. The anti-type is the salvation. But that it comes through one man. That's the point. This then brings us to our next paragraph. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. The free gift is not like the trespass, the trespass, the brokenness, what killed us all. Sin from our father Adam. But the free gift is different. It's better. That's going to be the difference. Because otherwise they're they're similar, right? Again, it's the type anti-type of Adam, Jesus. One man brought death, one man brings life. One man's trespass brought death to all. Now, much more, the grace of God, the gifts that he has of forgiveness, life, and salvation come through the one man, Jesus Christ, to many. Unfortunately, not all. We can safely say all with the first part in verse 15, that all died through the one man's trespass. I know Paul said many. All die because of sin. He said that already back in verse 12. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. The result of the sin was death to all. The result of the gift is life, again, for many. I do appreciate that in English, condemnation and justification both end with the Asian phrase. It helps you pair them up pretty well. Judgment after sin brought condemnation, that is, damnation, death, hell. But that free gift in Jesus Christ, after all the trespasses, after all the sin that had been done, that free gift brought justification, that is, being justified, being made right with God. Maybe I should say being made right by God because we have nothing to do with it. It's not like we go before God and we barter. We go before God as beggars, but he has forgiven us. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned, much more, again, Paul likes that language. He'll use it again in chapter 6, too, when it comes to the idea of being buried with Christ in baptism and then raised with him also, united with him in his resurrection. Much more. Uh, So much more here will we receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness. Yes, sin broke us, but Christ, Christ fixes us. He redeems us, he restores us, he makes us whole again. And that is a now and a not yet. These things are already being spoken of you. And yet we still live with tempted and sinful hearts. We still live in the brokenness. But there is a paradise coming. It's not yet, but it's coming. Where all of that will be done away with. And that's part of the much more here, that we will have the righteousness of Christ forevermore. Now, I do appreciate this reign in life. Notice the contrast to death reigning. Now we reign in life. We're back to what God created us to be. Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
tells us to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field. That's our task. We get to reign in life, and we will forever reign in life as we come alongside of Christ our groom in paradise and care for his new creation. But we get to start on it now as we wait. And then lastly, verses 18, 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's really a helpful summary to this whole section. I don't know that there's anything new in that that we haven't already said. I guess we can focus in maybe on the word righteousness. I haven't done that yet. What is righteousness? This was one of Luther's great struggles that led to the Reformation in the first place. Um, His tower experience, as some would call it. Wrestling with the idea that God demands that we would be righteous. And we're not. Not of our own accord, not by our own works. Righteous is perfect. And we're not that. And yet, then, we see here that the free gift of righteousness is ours through Christ. One act of righteousness, his act for us. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. That's part of what we'll see and talk about in the gospel reading here in a moment. He stood where we fell. He remained faithful where we failed. He kept the law that we did not keep. And he did it for us. And so when he dies on the cross, he takes all of our sins away from us, forgives all of it. Not only that, he also takes his righteousness, his perfection, and makes it ours. I love the chalkboard analogy on this one. I think it's helpful that if you have a chalkboard or a dry erase board, even if it's small, go ahead and just you know, start writing on it. And you can just envision this in your mind if you don't actually have one. Write all your sins on there. Or, or just start writing a bunch of sins. I think a lot of people view Christ's death on the cross and ongoing repentance even as Jesus erases their board. I confess my sin, Jesus wipes the board clean. What's the problem with that picture, though? I'm just going to fill it up again with my sins. And so what we talk about instead is Christ's imputed righteousness, that he takes his righteousness and he makes it ours. And so your board, it, it has Christ on it now. He has put himself on you. We talk about this as wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness is one way to say it. And we talk about it as uh, baptism, that the sign of the cross is made both upon the forehead and upon the heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. We wear Christ. We are his. And so as we come before God on the day of judgment, he sees his son's righteousness. And he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, enter into the joy of your master. That then is a good spot to move to our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is immediately following the baptism of Jesus, that the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice the purpose clause there, right? To be tempted. It's why Spirit takes him into the wilderness. And to wrap our minds around this a little bit, it's the same as the, the idea of his baptism. John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. He thinks it should be the other way around. Jesus should be baptizing him. And Jesus said, that it was in order to fulfill all righteousness. That was the reason for his baptism. It's the only spot where his baptism is given a reason in the Gospels. And it's not one that, on its surface, is all that helpful to us. We kind of read that and say, um, okay. It's the same here. What we're seeing is Jesus taking our place. Jesus as our substitute, or the, the term that I hear a lot, Israel reduced to one that he is God's people, taking our place, doing what we were supposed to do, all the things that we were supposed to do, living the perfect life we were supposed to live so that he can then die on the cross, the death that we deserve, but taking the death for us. And so here with his temptation in the wilderness, this would pair to the wilderness wanderings in the book of Exodus for the people of Israel. That God's people were supposed to be faithful, they were supposed to trust him, they were supposed to follow his commandments and rejoice in his salvation, that he had just delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and instead, what do they do? They grumble. And they grumble and they grumble and they grumble some more. They turn against the Lord. Why has he brought us out here into the wilderness to be killed by Pharaoh? Why has he brought us out into the wilderness to die of starvation? At least in Egypt, we had meat pots to our full. Those kinds of statements, again and again. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness is the match for the 40 years that the Israelites wandered. They were tempted by Satan in the wilderness and failed. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness and he passes the test. He remains faithful. That's the picture that we want to look in on this text. And really with a lot of what Jesus does, he's doing the things we were supposed to do. So tempted by the devil. The way Matthew phrases it, it doesn't sound like the devil's there until the end until after the forty days have come to their conclusion. Verse 3, And the tempter came. It seems like it would have made sense for the devil to be tempting him the whole time, but again, not the way Matthew phrases it here. So, forty days, forty nights, by the way, equivalent, yes, to the timing of the flood, the rain, in Genesis chapter 6. The number forty becomes a biblical number for testing, trial. Temptation. And the tempter, also known as the devil, begins to tempt him. We see three temptations the devil puts before him in this text. If you are the Son of God, and we can just stop right there. Why even bother responding? The devil is commanding you, the devil's demanding you 
to prove yourself to be who you already know yourself to be. Why bother? But he's challenging. He's challenging God. If you are the Son of God, which he is, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now the thing here is, Jesus could. If he wanted to, he could command those stones and they would become loaves of bread. It's entirely within his capacity. I mean, he takes water and he turns it into wine. The wedding in Cana. He declares to the Pharisees at one point that he could even make make the rocks cry out if the people were silent. He can do this. The trouble, though, is at this point he'd be doing it for the wrong reason. He'd be doing it as a prideful boast against the devil. Jesus responds to the devil by quoting scripture. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is an important one that we often forget today. We spend too much time focused on food and worrying about food and worrying what we'll eat and worrying if we'll eat. Man shall not live by bread alone. Bread is good. It's not saying it's not. But instead, what does man live by? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you have God's word, it will sustain you. That's the points Jesus just made to Satan. It is God's word that feeds us. It is God's word that builds us up. And even if we die of starvation couple days from now, because we run out of food now. If we have the word of God, we live forever. And in paradise. And it will be better by far. So our focus as Christians ought to be more on the word of God than it is on bread. Second temptation comes in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem and puts him on one of the higher points of the temple. I've heard it estimated that to fall from there would be a good hundred foot drop perhaps more. And Satan tempts him, if you are the Son of God, so again, prove yourself, throw yourself down because this cannot harm you. God will deliver you. He said so. Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 is what we have here. Notice how Satan progresses in the temptations. He hears the first response of Jesus that Jesus defends himself using scripture. So with the second temptation, the devil uses scripture. Notice that. Did God actually say, Genesis 3? 
The devil knows God's word. The devil is not opposed to using God's word and twisting it and manipulating it to manipulate you. We see this all the time. All the time. As there's so much false teaching out there that is used to cause doubt in the heart of the Christian and lead them away from Christ. So again, Psalm 91 is our referent here. That God will not allow harm to befall the Messiah. Essentially, the angels will bear him up. They'll carry him. Once again, Jesus responds with scripture. That's verse 7. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, responding with scripture again to the second temptation, Jesus goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Interestingly enough, that would apply to the devil here as well. The devil is putting Jesus to the test. But I think it's fair to say he has God's permission to do this here. It's part of fulfilling all righteousness for Jesus to endure temptation and stand faithful. Putting the Lord of the God to the test is not a good idea. Yes, he's made the promise in the Psalms that he will do this. But we don't need to push him. God has promised to forgive me. That doesn't mean I should go out and intentionally sin against my neighbor so that God can forgive me again. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Jesus could throw himself down. And God would save him. But the act of throwing himself down would be putting God to the test. It wouldn't be showing that fullness of trust. There's no need for Jesus to do this thing, basically. That's in contrast to somebody pushes him off a cliff and the Lord's sparing him. John, the apostle, the Romans cast him into a pot of boiling oil, trying to kill him. And God spared him from that. That doesn't mean we should all jump in pots of oil just to say, hey, look at me. It's not wise. We don't put God to the test. The Lord can act. The Lord does act. He does care. Satan tempts him a third time, takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, and offers all of it to him, if he will only bow down and worship the devil. This is another one of his good half-truths that he likes to do, as he is the prince of the power of the air. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, they did entrust this creation to the devil. God entrusted it to them, and then they handed it to Satan. So you think of like your neighbor 
entrust something to you, they give it to you to care for, and you give it to somebody else. That's essentially what Adam and Eve have done. So it is in the devil's hands, but ultimately it's not his. It belongs to the Lord, and Christ has come back into this creation to redeem it. He's come back to be its true king, not just to have some small layer of power over it now that the devil's offering. So can the devil offer this? Yes. Yes, he can. But at the same time, it would be such a small, failed reality. It would be nowhere near what Christ actually has as the true king. It would still be in Satan's grasp. And Jesus knows this and he is not going to give in. At this point, he does still respond with scripture. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, that we should only worship God. First commandment kind of thing there. And he says, be gone, Satan. And notice, Satan obeys. Jesus is God. The devil is, yes, in rebellion against God, but the devil is still a creature. He's still a created thing. He still must obey the voice of the one who created him. And so when Jesus commands him, the devil must do. The devil cannot act unless Jesus permits it. That brings us to our final verse, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Satan takes leave, and we never actively see him again in Matthew's gospel. There is a lot of wrestling with demonic possession in the book as Jesus casts out demons. Jesus will stick the devil into one of his parables in chapter 13, and he'll talk about how hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels in chapter 25. But Matthew's gospel is about how Jesus came to save us. It doesn't end up boasting about the devil's work or the devil's power, but that Christ has power instead. So uh, we're going to end on that angels ministering to him note. I think it connects back to Psalm 91 just above. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up. They're bearing him up. He is weak after 40 days of not eating. That's a long time. And if he weren't God in the flesh, he wouldn't have survived it. We can't go that long without food. But even God in the flesh, God and man, it's still a struggle for him now. He's hungry famished. And the angels, who are his servants, his messengers, they come and they care for him. They help him in his time of need.